Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eamon Bell, the host of the channel. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Maki Solomos, author of From Music to Sound, The Emergence of Sound in 20th and 21st Century Music, which was published by Routledge in October 2019. The thesis of From Music to Sound can be stated simply, but it is a far from simple claim that the 20th century bears witness to a kind of paradigm shift relating to the subject matter of music. As Solomos writes, quote, from a musical culture centered on the note to a culture of sound, end quote. Crucially, Solomos sets out to trace this phenomenon as a change that is largely music internal, that is to say that it can be understood with reference to the new aesthetic and cultural forms that put sound at stake within music. He draws an analysis, score and recording-based listening, and the aesthetic writings of composers themselves to argue for the emergence of sound as a musical topic, proceeding as a result of the increasing complexity of music throughout the century. Names and works likely familiar to listeners are marshaled to support this idea. Rousselot, Webern, Schaefer, Xenakis, Tristan Murai, to name only a handful. But its rich selection of music examples provides ample points of departure into the work of composers perhaps less widely known to listeners, including Francois Bernard Mache, Fausto Romatelli, and Dmitry Kolyansky, among others. Though the focus of the book is squarely on these contemporary pioneers in the tradition of Western art music composition, Solomos is careful to acknowledge that this titular transition from quote music to sound is not the exclusive preserve of institutional music culture. Examples from recorded rock, jazz, and post-rock help round out the picture by pointing out the role that sound studio cultures, and we might say technique and techniques in general, play in the objectification of sound as such across genre lines in music. Solmos's book has its roots in an earlier French-language publication, De la Musique au Son, which was published in 2013 by the Presse Universitaire de Rennes. The English edition, translated by John Tyler Tuttle, contains a foreword by Simon Emerson, and a generous bibliography covering key sources in the history of contemporary music in both French and English. His first single author monograph in English, From Music to Sound, is an accessible and engaging entry point into Solomos's work for an Anglophone audience that draws not only on his long career as a musicologist of 20th and 21st century music, but also as a specialist in the musical thought of Adorno and the music of Zanakis, whose shaping force on the text I've already alluded to. Maki Solomos, welcome to the show. Hello, Emon. Thank you very much for inviting me in your no session. Thanks for joining me today. Um, so before we start talking about the book, I wonder if you could begin uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself and specifically how you came to write this book um, and maybe your account of the, the journey that it took from the original French edition in 2013 to the new English edition that we'll be speaking about today. Uh I'm a Greek and French uh, musicologist working uh, principally on 20th and 21st century music. Um, My work started um, in the late 80s when I decided to to work on what we called at the time in France and many other countries contemporary music. And um, very soon I decided to focus on Xenakis music probably because he was a Greek composer, and at that time I was thinking to go back uh, to Greece. And uh, then um, 
I saw that there were many um, insights, many writings about Xenakis. At that time, they were insisting on in his own presentation, which is uh, making the focus on science, on maths, on what is rational, shall we say. And I was not very glad because... Uh, for me, Xenakis was also very sensual music, a very sensitive one. Um, for instance, the question of space was was very important. Uh, and so the question of sound uh, begins to emerge. It was also the times, now I'm thinking more about the 90s in French, where the question of timbre was very important. Le timbre in French, you know, it's a French word. And uh, so in um, places like in Irkam, they were, uh, it was the time of spectral music. So they, w- they were speaking a lot about uh, timbre, timber. Th- there was a famous book published um, by Irkam uh, about uh, le timbre, metaphor pour la composition, the timber metaphor for composition, a, r- a book about 400 pages with uh, articles from Murat, Griset, and a lot of uh, ongoing composers. So in a way, I, I took up this question, bringing with Xenakis, and so I make a PhD, which was on Xenakis and his pieces from metastasis to Persephone as 60s and 70s, pointed out the question, I decided to call it sound and not timber. It was a strategic point for, of me, because for me, Xenakis, the link was Varese, and Varese never, speak, uh, uh, never spoke about timber, he spoke about sound. So this was, of course, the, the first my first entry in sound. In fact, when I finished the, the thesis, it was I had the idea to make two books: one on Xenakis and one on sound. On Xenakis, I worked a lot, a lot, a lot for many years, many articles, books. The book on sound waited a lot, a lot, about twenty years. I made a lot of articles. Um, uh, on music like serial music, where you normally don't speak about sound, but about notes, and of course about spectral music on uh, recent composers, you quote uh, Kurlianski, Pascal Criton, and many others. So it took me 20 years, I had a lot, a lot of material, and one day I decided to write a book using this material, but not gathering articles, rewriting from the beginning to the end, and uh, with new ideas, uh, for instance, phenomenology of music. Uh, uh, and um, at the time, I was going far away from Adorno, which I used very much at the time for my thesis. So, in fact, this is a long story, about 20 years of maturation. And um, at one point, I was not sure I could be able to, to make this book because I had so many things and so many. So, in a way... This book is my way to see music. So, in fact, it's a history of music. And it's my way of what I like in 20th and 21st century music. And uh, so there are many, many things, many references. And there could be uh, much more. For instance, um, when people speak about this book, especially composers, uh, composers say, why do you not mention me for... (laughs) Okay, this is... (laughs) I say, I'm sorry, I cannot mention everybody, but I will not. But many other people say, oh, this book, uh, you could mention this one, this composer, this composer. 
on the first time I thought it was a critic, but in fact it was not a critic. It's because it opens their appetite. I don't know if you say that in English. It they wanted to speak and to listen mo- more about music. So, in a way, it's a kind of uh, yes, uh, how to to navigate inside music of twenty and twenty one century. Um, this book so was published first in French in uh, uh, two thousand thirteen. I finished after many years, and it was a, a big book. Uh, the, the English edition is the two-third of the French edition, because it was much more, um, and the English editor couldn't accept all that. And also, there is another difference between the two editions, is that there are many examples in the book. For me, it was really important. In the French book, they are all in scores, in uh, diagrams. In the English, we put some in... Um, in uh, the internet, which is for me, it's a little bit missing because I don't think that people will go. On. But okay, the books are, are there. The, the reference are there. The, the other important difference between the two editions is that um, I also changed some references. It was nice because I, I make it five years later. So I get rid of some composers. <laughs> that was an interesting uh, gesture. And also, I, I, I saw that. Effectively, they were missing a lot of composers. For instance, uh, I, I will quote John Adams because in the times I wrote in French, I thought he was a neoclassical composer, but now I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, uh, there was people like uh, Alvin Curran, um, Julius Instrument, which we discover more and more now, and uh, Michael Nyman, also Wolfgang Grimm. Etc. Etc. So um, and Trevor Wishart, I, w- I think uh, I, I owe this uh, to Simon Emerson, who make a critic. So he pointed out that I was missing some English, uh, British, sorry, important composers. So that's the story about uh, the the book and the two versions. Yeah, and I, you know, my personal experience of reading it also was this kind of you know selection of composers and musical works was a very exciting provocation to listen um because it brought me in touch with repertoire that i hadn't been familiar with so there's maybe a lot of names that might not be super familiar to people who are more familiar with maybe a more traditional or a kind of the existing textbooks or the existing um 21st 20th century landscape that we've maybe internalized from our or undergraduate days, but in, in any case, um, this sense of many works and many pathways for discovery um, becomes something that is kind of brought in check, <laughs> if you like, by the structure of the book, which to me is actually quite unusual and, and quite interesting. So before we start talking about um, the content of the chapters, the six chapters that make up the book, I, I wonder if you could just guide our listeners through that overall structure and tell us a little bit about why you saw fit to organize uh, all these preferences and thoughts in this particular way. So each of the six main chapters offers up a a history of six key topics worked out by music in this kind of music internal way during the period under study. Um, And these six concepts are timbre, spoke a little bit about that just now, noise, listening, the verb, uh, immersion, the composition of sound is material, and then finally something that you call a sound space, a kind of unification of sound and space as a concept. And in a way, these chapters are self-contained in that every chapter marks a reset in time. Key works and um, compos- compositional developments are um, 
relevant to each concept are mapped out starting from the beginning of the century each time. But these chapters are hardly disconnected. In fact, as you write, quote, sound is not the prerogative of just one of these six histories. It results precisely from their combination. Their interaction produces the singular history of the emergence of sound, end quote. So that for me is a very interesting reflection on the value of the structure of the book. So could you speak a little bit about why this approach worked for you when it comes to organizing such a wide-ranging and synthetic book, both in the French version and the English version? And does that structure tell us uh, something, and this is maybe a kind of an Adornian point, does this tell us something about the character of the topic itself, namely sound? Okay. Um, This is true that... um Sound is a very complex story. Um, in fact, it's very difficult to approach it in physical terms. Uh, for instance, the parametrical, as we say, view, uh, uh, pitch, uh, the rhythm, timbre, etc., is not really working um, with what we knew as we knew as sound, because sound is very, in fact, is a perception category as as um, as timbre as many other things in music. So. Uh, it was um, it was important to to view it um, with a I won't say parametrical view I don't like this term but with a multi layer view. Second point, um, this multi layer view uh, uh, allows us to to approach complexity, which um, otherwise with language which is linear, it's not easy. Music has polyphony, so it's it's much more complex the language. Um, finally, um, in fact, in a way, this book is a history of music. So, at that time, I began to work uh, musicology, and um, maybe till recently, I was very—I was not um, uh, easy with music history. I, in fact, I didn't like music history, probably as many other specialists of contemporary music, because in musicology. Um, in fact, music history is not made by historians, but only by conservative people. In fact, we music history is the, the fact that we deal mostly with ancient music. <laughs> so, in contemporary music, many people don't like music history. Mm-hmm. And now, music, uh, contemporary music is historical, so we need music history. We need. Uh, so... As this is a mature a book of maturity, um, as I told it, it's the way I'm seeing music. It's normal that it has to be hist- history, but not a linear history like historiography, which is not hi- hi- history, where people put dates one after the other and they think it's history. So, as I'm not a historian, I make, I, I find this management to make something which is history, but not a simple history. So I took the metaphor of the spiral because the first chapter goes back with timber to the orchestration history. So it goes back to uh, the 17th century. And the final chapter starts later on the late 19th with space. So each chapter made the whole history, but uh, in more and more and more condensate. Maybe there could be a a seventh chapter with only 20 last years about technology, for instance. So that that's the the way I manage. uh, And inside, for instance, the first chapters, there are two histories also. So to, to show the complexity of what we call history. Sure. And that's actually a great way to start talking concretely about 
the first chapter, which is uh, deals with timbre and has maybe the largest historical scope of all the of all the chapters. So you begin with a, a kind of conceptual history, looking at um, the use of the the term timbre in in the dictionary and encyclopedia definitions. Um, as you explain, this word starts its life tied up with sound making devices like bells and clocks, but then quickly becomes um, the term of choice for the sort of missing qualitative dimension of sound. So if pitch and loudness were, were well understood and when quant- well quantified, timbre was the sort of odd one out. Um, the analysis moves quickly to music, though, with um, a nice selection of examples and many, many suggestions for future listening, something that's valuable throughout the text. So what I like about this chapter is how you distinguish quite clearly between two distinct strands of the development of timbre in the 20th century compositions that you look at. The first strand explores what you call the, quote, timbre object. So this is an idea that timbre arrives as a legitimate dimension of music um, on which to construct melodies, melodies that are not differentiated, let's say, traditionally by differences in pitch height or relative pitch height, but as a sequence or pattern of timbres. So that's a sort of mapping of the melody concept onto a new dimension. And then the second concept, quite different, is what you call the extension of harmony in timbre, which relates to the emergence of timbre as an object comparable to harmony, which is to say musical phenomena in their vertical or simultaneous features. So like an entirely rigid distinction between these two things is not tenable, but I think it's a really useful starting point, and it's one that rejects a kind of simple one-dimensional story about, you know, the emancipation of timbre in this highly general sense. So it starts to unpick maybe the different dimensions under which timbre comes into its own as um, a feature of sound as worked out through music being the main theme of the text. So could you explain a little bit more about the benefits of keeping these two threads of timbre separate in the repertoire that you cite in the first chapter? Thank you for, uh, for your questions and your remarks. Uh, in fact, timber uh, is um, there is a very big history, as you said, and um, today maybe um, even if there are um, people that are interested in timber uh, and continue to to work on it, I think the the history is already closed because we have said everything about timber, um, theoretically, physically, or musically. Um, theoretically. It's clear that timber is a perceptual factor, and um, what is also clear is that it's related to what we call an instrument. For instance, the category of timber is not working for electronic music. Here, you have to clearly speak about sound, because you, in electronic music, you cannot dissociate pitch, rhythm. You have to speak about the complexity. For an instrument, yes. Okay, this is the the um, classical definition. What is the difference between a, an instrument and another playing the same pitch, the same rhythm, etc., etc.? Now we have to add in the same spatial position, etc., etc. The difference is timbre. But even with this definition, we are very frustrated. I think so. In fact, it's rooted in history. In um, I think it's the the link between tone, what we call tone, and sound, timbre. Because as it was thought as a new parameter, it was good for pitch composers, for tone composers, not only for tonal music, but for people like Schoenberg. It was a way for them to explore this wasteland of sound, which is uh, where when you are coming 
from the culture of tone, it's very complex. What is a sound? You are afraid because it's too vast. It has no limits. Uh, a tone, it has a limit. It's very clear. You have harmony, three, three, um, three tone uh, chords, etc., etc. Sound, everything is possible. So, I think timber was. Uh, I, I don't say it like that in the book. Now it's it's a, it's an idea. I will ex- I could explore that. Timber was a category for three centuries, the link, and then it becomes very important, and then we are going to sound, and we don't need any more this category. <laughs> of course, there was written a lot of music with this category, and what we can discover is that um, it doesn't, it, it is not a linear category because linear, because in fact there are two paradigms, exactly. So um, uh, what tries to make Schoenberg with the Klangfar melodies, not the same like spectral music. It's not at all the same use of the word timber. So in the first category is the timbre object, timber object. Uh, so uh, it's um, timber is a parameter, so it's something more. So in the Klangfar melody concept uh, by Schoenberg, to use it, uh, Schoenberg in, uh, in the Opus 16 the third piece, he makes these radical decisions. He neutralized in a way pitch rhythm. So he worked only in, in timber. And so we see clearly that timber is, in fact, here uh, the orchestration, the orchestration matter, but with uh, some independence. So this is a, a story which goes till the 70s, 1970s, 80s, where people try to make these maps of timber. Uh, and they so easily that it, it didn't work because uh, timber is not, if we take in this um, direction, is not like pitch. It's too heavy, I will say. It's not manipulated, easy to manipulate like pitch. So the map of timbers, it was a nice idea, but it didn't go uh, very far. And the other idea, which um, continues to be explored, is that we can view timber as the spectral analysis works. So it is a kind of continuation of harmony because if you make two complex chords, we know that from Debussy, Ravel, then there is a moment of shifting, uh, as we say, could say qualitative shifting, where a chord is not anymore a chord but begins to be a sound. So uh, here people say that it's a timber, but in fact it's a sound, it's not a timber. But we can't use the term of timber because we are making spectral analysis. For, for me, the second use of, um, of timber goes clearly toward the d- direction of composed sound. So I was very in difficulty with spectral music, where to put it, in the first chapter history or in the fifth. So I decided to put, to put it both the, uh, in, in the... Uh, Chapter one, it was the history of uh, the illusionist way of going from harmony to timber, and the fifth, the way to compose sound. That's uh, that's. A, but of course, the two histories interwind in a way. Uh, for instance, uh, there is a whole discussion about how the Klangfarben melody of Schoenberg was already, in fact, a spectral hypothesis, and not only um, the Klangfarben. Because um, it, uh, it's not clear if Schoenberg believed really that it was possible to con- construct melodies of timber. I don't think he think really about that. Right. Well, that's uh, that's a nice reflection that is applicable to uh, 
the book more generally, which is that we mentioned it before, but it's worth mentioning again, even when the history of music seems to provide these forks in the road where there is a clear or apparently clear distinction between one conceptualization of a musical concept versus another, the full story is only apparent when we cut across those um, those two stories. And, and that's something that comes back again and again in the book. Um, and again, just to reiterate, like, this is one example of the objectification of music of sound in in music. So the second conception of timbre that you spoke about is a nice thumbnail um, sketch of the story that we expect to repeat in in the subsequent chapters. So chapter two then um, is called on noise, and noise is a tricky concept. Um, wouldn't be the first person to have written about it, and it, it it's tricky. It's to do, I think, partly with its oppositional character. Noise is often defined. Uh, rather negatively in opposition to something else rather than positively. And one way to look at noise is to say that it brings about a central dilemma to the musician who wants to work with noise as a sound object. If by musicalizing noise, um, noise becomes formalized or subject to rules, maybe it's lost uh, the unruliness that characterizes that, that noise. And this particular criticism of the futurists and britisme has been made many times before. And your chapter is kind of an entry into this debate um, a little bit. And the way that you make your contribution is to suppose, again, two histories of noise in music. Again, it's a heuristic. It's not something that we take for granted, but something that we kind of deconstruct throughout the chapter. One, uh, where noises are already a component of music, and that's something that's in place long before the 20th century. And another where noise lives in a kind of music theoretical opposition to pure sounds or consonant sounds. Again, a concept with a long history, but slightly different from the first concept of noise. And then in between these two concepts, the idea of dissonance arises, which signals uh, a common ground or a convergence between these two strands, um, these two thought ways of conceptualizing noise. So I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about a couple of musical works that helped you conceive of the history of noise in this particular way. Um, both those works that put the two parallel histories into evidence, but also um, maybe more interestingly, those compositions that start to pull those two strands together when it comes to noise. Mm -hmm. to, to start with your uh, uh, observation that by musicalizing noise, um, by formalizing uh, the rules, um, maybe noise is losing its own characteristics, uh, brutalism, uh, brutism, etc. Um, I think that uh, it's a very important observation because uh, uh, one thing that is missing in this chapter, when I wrote it, uh, is the, um, the, the way that sound is used as expression. Okay, I'm speaking about noise as... Uh, a way to make revolt revolution. Uh, there is a whole part on it, but I think it's not enough. I think that um, today many people are continuing to explore noise because of these characteristics. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, of, of course, about uh, of what we call noise music, but also of some theoretical uh, um, points of view, like uh, Paul Hergerty uh, uh, books. So. To start with that, uh, in fact, noise is a kind of counterpoint of timber. Uh, timber is a very civilized way to view music. 
it's very French in a way, in a sense. What what people who are not French uh, view French people, which are very polite, very civilized, etc. Which is not true, of course. French can can be rude, and they make noise um, also. Uh, so uh, it's noise is the opposite. So it's more devoted to uh, people without culture, etc., etc. And uh, for instance, Varese, who is a French composer, had to leave French to make noise music. That's very interesting. So this this would be a really social history. I think that I'm working more now. Maybe we will speak later on that. So this is to say that, as you said, there are many, many things to say more and more about um, uh, noise, uh, but not quitting music, but with a, view, a point of view of social or ecological and not intramusical. As about the intramusical history that I'm making in this book, um, what was fascinating me is that in, uh, noise is always a part of music. Uh, if you hear uh, contra- contrabass, it's, it's noise, it's not a musical instrument. <laughs> you have to make a really effort to listen, to hear a pitch with a contrabass. Uh, you, you have a, a really effort. Uh, the same with the instrument, uh, cembalo. In, uh, the first thing it's, it uh, strokes you is that it is noise. So I started from this point of view. Uh, I discovered Michel Chion um, uh, books. Uh, he took the example of uh, Domenico Scarlatti sonatas for cembalo, and he said that, in fact, it's full of noise, but what makes that you uh, musicologists don't view it uh, is the score. Because when you view it through the score, the, uh, the noise has disappeared because it's pitches and rhythms. So noise was always in music, but musicians and especially music theorists tried to avoid it, to cut it, to castrate. Uh, so to cut the transitories of attack, to... Uh, to 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 play uh, to to listen it like if it was a sinusoidal uh, instrument. Okay, so this is the not official history of music, and the official history is the 20th century where noise begin to be uh, claimed as. And what makes the transition is a dissonance in a way, because dissonance is uh, made with tones, but is considered as. Uh, as a noise, and then there is a, um, to answer to a question, the, the composer who will make the shifting is Varese, of course, where the unofficial history begins to be uh, the official history. So I think it's um, interesting that there is a shift here also, and um, today, okay, the official history is also the history of noise, not, not always, not in all music. So Maybe um, I think the history of noise will continue, but with electronic music, not with its instrumental music, maybe. Yeah, this is a again touching on something that comes up a little bit later. One, the as you referenced, the kind of constitutive force of music technology, by which we mean not just electronic or, or computational technologies, but the technology of score writing and, and literacy that can make a kind of implicit judgment about yeah about what sound is, or rather what, what counts as noise or not. And then secondarily, um, this idea of recurrence or recovery of histories that um, 
the difference between an official and an unofficial history of a concept um, is definitely something that comes out later on um, and something that I think the book does quite well. So in the third chapter, um, we move towards the kind of the the verb form, (laughs) if you like, of of, um, a sort of an analysis in terms of the verb. And obviously that verb in English is listening. Um, So the distinction between object and subject when it comes to sound is always a negotiation. Um, We might say that if the preceding two chapters concerned features of sound that are classically thought to inhere in its objects, so timbre and noise, the third chapter turns toward the listener or more generally the perceiving subject. People listening now will probably be familiar with figures like how, how figures like John Cage and Pierre Schiffer work in different ways against the highly idealized kind of listening associated with, for example, concert performance in the 18th and 19th century. New forms of composition and manipulation of sound reveal this to be only one of many kinds of listening, and in fact, a rare and quite contrived one at that. And in this chapter, you situate the thought of people like Cage and Schaefer against some of their students. And um, But for me, one of the, the the core issues in the chapter is drawn out in this brief but detailed discussion of two contrasting comments about listening made by Lyotard on the one hand and the composer Luigi Nono. And the issue at stake in their discussion is when is the postmodern promise of a new kind of listening, in fact, a recovery or a rediscovery of a nominally more, quote, authentic kind of listening, which is actually traditional or aggressive in disguise. So again, we have this topic of um, the idea that there might be a hidden or a kind of repressed history that is being recovered or maybe blown completely out of the water. And what emerges in the book is that tradition of music listening and music composition can exert a kind of gravitational pull back towards kind of authoritarian concepts of the listener, I suppose. And the question I'd like to ask in relation to the third chapter is, which composers and compositions that you talk about kind of succeed at achieving escape velocity, so to speak, Um, like escaping this pull back towards an authoritarian concept of the listener? And what kind of common sets of tools and musical techniques did they use to manage this, to achieve this kind of escape from uh, the more traditional types of conceptions of listening? Uh, before answering directly to your question, very interesting, uh, let me say first, uh, the, um, the strategical place of this uh, chapter inside the book, um, as, as, as we know, we are, we continue to say something that it's not true that contemporary music is difficult. Okay, if you are trying to listen to the series of Boulez, Stockhausen, if you are trying to to listen and to understand by listening uh, the statistics of Xenakis, of course it's difficult. <laughs> it's really difficult. Uh, but this is the writing procedures. You know that in France we are speaking a lot about writing as metaphor for composition. Uh, but music is not only writing; it's not only the score. So, the it's it's clear when you begin to be um, used to contemporary experimental music that the point, the difficulty is not in the music itself. In a way, uh, Xenak is much more easier than, and simpler than Gabrielli or some polyphonic composer of, uh, of the 17th century. The difficulty is that when you listen to Xenakis to Boulez, you, if you are a classical listener, 
you, you are expecting to find melodies, harmonies, and things like that. So the point, the important is to make a shift in your listening and to to stop to, to listen to things that are not that and, and to listen to things that are that. So sound is, is an entry um, very, very important for them. So this is why this chapter is in the middle of the book and this is very important to be in this book, even if it's not a book about philosophy, about perception, etc. So the, 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 the other important thing is also that um, from beginning the 1990s, 2000s, musicologists stopped to interest only in composers and they begin to interest also a listener. The, I had a very uh, good friend and colleague, uh, you, you know probably Peter Zendi, uh, who now is in in the States, who, who was one of the first to, to, to write a book about the history of listening and to theory, uh, theorize this idea. So this now we are used to that, and it's nice to make a, a history of listening. In the book, as I'm interested in music itself, it's a history of uh, listening through musical works. And in this book, I decided to, to, to start, let's say, late with Cage directly. What interested me is, uh, as in the whole book, to, to put together music that are not going together or theoreticians that are not together. Here I put together Cage and Pierre Schaeffer. So the two different trends, the European experimental music and the American experimental, who are supposed to be antithetical uh, histories. In fact, they speak about the same thing, the shifting to listening, of course, with very different uh, ways of doing um, so, to continue and to go on towards your uh, question now, um, we, we, um, there, there were more and more people interested in uh, uh, listening to spectral music and uh, many other people. Jean-Claude Risset is also important. And then in the 90s, there was um, the contribution of Luigi Nono. I think one of the most important about uh, listening, with the help of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the philosopher, he, he, it was his friend Massimo Cacciari. Uh, Cacciari. So, so um, they, they wrote a very important article. And at the same time, they, there was this article, a quote uh, of Jean-François Lyotard, The Obedience. Obedience. So this is a point uh, where the book begins to be a little bit philosophical. And... Listening can be an entry uh, to music f- with uh, uh, for philosophers, as we know from um, phenomenology. Uh, it was one of the first ten. Uh, th- there was also a contribution of uh, Heideggerians, and so, as you mentioned, it was a postmodern debate. Let's say of what is listening: is it a way to de- rediscover truth or not? So, in this point, it's uh, I decided to oppose the point of view of the philosopher, Lyotard, for whom it was very disappointing, because for him, listening was obedience. So, it was a tr- classical uh, view of music uh, from the philosopher, from Plato till today. Sometimes music is uh, only a way of being passive for, for philosophers. Uh, which is uh, totally wrong. Why why listening should be a, a passive way of being? Uh, in in the book I'm writing now, I, I'm working on composers, feminists like Westerkamp. You know, passivist is also to say it's feminine. 
you know. So, so uh, it was disappointing for me because Philo- uh, Lyotard was a very uh, avant-garde philosopher, but maybe because it was postmodern, so she opposed. Uh, um, I don't know. Listening, she 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 was not clear. So I decided that Luigi Nono view was much more interesting, and. Okay, with listening, we are trying to find something which is supposed to be more truth, but not in a metaphysical sense. Uh, so it was not a way to be uh, obedient uh, or uh, um, obedient, yes, or religious, but a way to be free, to be free through the question uh, in which Nono is through the question of multiplicity. So this opens totally new ways where sound can be viewed no, not la- like an object or, or, or a kind of um, uh, matrix, but uh, um, complexity. Complexity with, would be the world. With ethical and, uh, stakes too. Sorry? With ethical stakes exactly, too. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So there are, uh, I think that the discussion about uh, listening uh, continues. About is it, um, and, but now we know this is not a passive way of being. On the contrary, there are many people writing about listening as an active way to be uh, in the world, to be communi- to communicate with the world. Uh, this is a good segue, in fact, to the next chapter, chapter four, which is about um, immersion in sound. So, not just um, reaching out <laughs> from the point of view of the listener to the sound object, but in fact being somehow enveloped or entirely absorbed in it, um, kind of intensified form of, of this activity that we've just talked about. So in the fourth chapter, you talk about the trope of immersion in contemporary or 20, 21st century music, a metaphor rich with implications for the scales on which music and sound operates. So from the microscopic inspection of sound with computers of a, of a grise, to the macroscopic construction of literal sound edifices of its anarchists, the 20th century troubled the situation of the listener as somehow outside of the scene of sonic activity. Rather, some composers offered intimate engagement with and subjection to sound as the main verb of their music, and doing so gave a new life to accounts of sound that also explicitly engage not only the inner lives or spirits of the composers and listeners, but also the inner lives of sounds themselves. So in this chapter, the, the thesis is the thesis that the book's larger thesis that music can work out ideas about sound is connected with classical concerns of music's place in a spiritual society, as if music's becoming sound again was a necessary first step before we could speak about music in metaphysical terms again. So something that we might say went out of fashion with a particularly clinical or modernist perspective on sound from the first half of the 20th century. There were, as you point out in the chapter again, at least two distinct ways that this figures in music composition. On the one hand, a kind of secular and vitalist oceanic tendency that can even find itself in post-punk and ambient and um, non-Western classical music contexts. And the more explicitly spiritual um, aspect of which the latter approach is drawn out in your uh, discussion of Jacinto Chelsea's String Quartet Number no. 4 from 1964. Chelsea isn't the only composer discussed in this chapter, but your account of this brief and immersive, and that's the key word, uh, work gives a sense of your own kind of personal excitement at what 20th century music can do to our understanding of sound, again, in the music internal way that is central to the book. So could you let it, 
our listeners know a little bit about what it is about Chelsea's music that makes it such a rich illustration of the kind of rescaling in depth, and here I mean depth kind of spatially, but also spiritually, that is the theme of the fourth chapter about immersion. Uh, in a way, in fact, if I had to rewrite uh, the book, I will make the connection with the o- question of obedience, as you you saw. The, the, this is the, the the continuity. In fact, this chapter, um, I think, it poses. It, it's not. Um, it can be criticized. <laughs> it was criticized when I sent to the editor the proposal because it takes immersion in the um, not in the technological uh, sense, uh, being in sound through loudspeakers, but in a more metaphysical. Of course, I deal also with immersion in the physical sense, but I was more interested in the idea uh, developed by Chelsea that a sound is a kind of entity matrix as i said before a kind of um i'm sorry i forgot in english the the mother um, uh are you saying english uh, le ventre maternel the the uh, uh, when you're in your mother's i like the womb yeah womb, exactly exactly, exactly. Yeah. um so for people i like think Chelsea, sorry amniotic i think you referred to in this amniotic point. and the womb yeah. sound could be viewed as a womb and the listener could be as a, as a fetus uh, in the amniotic situation. Shells, in a way, I, I, I don't think I know quite well his he, he don't speak about the womb, but it could be a metaphor for him. The metaphor of the womb and the, the amniotic is used with ambient music, uh, Brian and on some other. Uh, we are um, floating, we are uh, in sound, immersion, etc., etc. And uh, we can also go back to, to Wagner, and it's uh, here I speak about oceanic view. Sound can do can be viewed as uh, uh, the sea, and um, you know the, 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 there was a famous discussion between Sigmund Freud and Romain Roland. Romain Roland in the twenties, I think, uh, the French writer wrote a book about uh, Beethoven, Wagner, etc. And he he developed the idea there is uh, something which he called the oceanic state. Um, and uh, he used uh, the, the um, uh, sentence where Baudelaire, the French poet, uh, spoke about uh, Wagner and saying that we are floating, we are uh, swimming. Sorry, I was searching, we are swimming in Wagner's music. <laughs> And uh, uh, Freud, who was a Jewish uh, rationalist, answered, there is not such a state. <laughs> and he wrote his famous book uh, uh, about the uh, civilization um, in the 30s, when the Nazis uh, were just in power, and he said the oceanic state is, in fact, a fascist state in a way. So this situation, this discussion are very interesting because we find them in music and uh, uh, when you are speaking in sound, there is this metaphysical point of view very often. Even today, uh, where we are more familiar with sound through technology, people speak about sound like this kind of entity. Um, of course, it's not, uh, they are not fascist people at all. Grisey <laughs> and many other. Okay, this was Freud's uh, point of view. Huh? So no confusion about that. All music of sound is not Wagnerian, another uh, fascist, not at all. Um, but this is this mystical uh, trend. Chelsea is the the main composer of this trend, uh, 
and he was also mystical in his way of being, referring to in Hinduism, to Byzantine culture, etc., etc. It was, um, let's say, the prefiguration of New Age in the 60s. So, and in his music, he's trying with the instrumental music to develop the idea that there is a, a depth inside in sound. So there is something inside sound. So I think that Chelsea is central, and it's why I use it in central uh, position. But of course, there is also Stockhausen in the sixties, seventies. Gerard Grisey is also really important. You know, in France, people say that Grisey is the most German composer of the spectral music, probably because he is the more mystical of them, and the more ecological also. We don't know where Griset would have been because he he died very early. Shad will would he have continued either in mystical or in ecological point of view. But okay, and there are I, I it was also a, a way for me to to quote. Uh, Coltrane music and many other musicians of jazz who, who had also this point of view, who um, they work sound not like timber, not, not constructing, composing like um, uh, in, in chapter five, but as a mystical, uh, as a for, for Coltrane, it was not musically, it was a religious uh, state, but not the traditional religious. The, the way that religious offers you the possibility to, to escape. That's that's it. Great. No, thank you. That's that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, and I think it also speaks to the potential usefulness of something that I don't think a huge amount about in my own work, but I see it increasingly coming into the fore, like the theological or the divine. This theology as a as an academic discourse that can still provide a useful resource even in a society or a framework that rejects religion or organized religion or religiosity in its kind of more um yeah superstructural forms okay um so you alluded to chapter five and we're coming up to it now um and this concerns um sound construction and, and composing sound in particular. There's this interesting habit in musicological writing where we, we refer to the materials of music. Um, and already that's, you know, it's a big metaphor to, to draw on. But um, in thinking about music in this way, in the 20th century in particular, sometimes we are inclined to think about it as a kind of exorcism of the tonal materials of music that have served composer so well for several hundred years prior. So on this view, the history of music is simply a history of the materials of music, moving from modal material to tonal material to atonal material to ultimately the sonic material that uh, is the subject of the book. But as you point out in these stories, and this is an important quote for me in the book, quote, it is not only the historicity of the materials that is put forward, but also the historical character of the very notion of material itself, end quote. So I'm really interested in this move, especially since you've already said you don't consider yourself a historian, because <laughs> this is a very, this is a, a wonderfully sensitive kind of comment because it raises the stakes, if you like, for the historiography of music, because it suggests that music compositions shouldn't be viewed as the logical and largely deterministic exploitation of some pre-existing sonic materials to hand at any given moment, but rather 
each piece offers proposals or counterproposals of what it is that musical material can be at any particular moment in history. And there's a subtle distinction between those two positions. Uh, to make this point, you start out with Weber and Symphony, Opus Number 21, which, as you say, foreshadows the development of a new kind of musical treatment above and beyond the note level, what you call a turn towards um, an overall sound state or composed resonance. Composed resonance is the, the term that comes up a lot in this chapter as you know that which is the new material of music, if you like, or the new object of music composition that moves in this way. And this trope occurs in different ways, in different discourses, sometimes as a turn to sonority, sometimes as a turn to texture, sometimes as a turn to morphology and so on. But in all cases, we might say that what at stake compositionally is something like the grain of musical sound. So could you explain what the last hundred years of music looks like if we tune into this particular theme and tell um, both our listeners and myself some pieces and composers that you think um, shed light on this shift in orientation towards material? Um, uh, This chapter focused on composing the material uh, where there is not a single word, like in the other chapters, it, it was difficult to find one. It, 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 in a way, it's the counterpoint of the of the, the pre- previous chapters. Uh, the, the previous chapter uh, deal with the mystical uh, ways of viewing sound. This one is with the rational, uh, compose, organize, uh, rationalize. The the central figure of the beginning is Theodore Adorno. Uh, with his theory of uh, uh, material. Um, Adorno, of course, didn't like at all uh, sound music. He wrote a very critical article in the 60s about music, about sound. And of course, also in the 30s, in his famous article about uh, the fetishism um, uh, of of listening, where he criticized jazz music, he says that uh, he he used the word, uh, not timber, but instrument. He says that the focus on instrument that we view in the, uh, these very bad listeners that are jazz listeners <laughs> is um, yeah, it's bad. But I don't know, of course, was very intelligent. So he, he saw that the whole history of 20th century music, 30s, 40s, and 60s, uh, he had the occasion to analyze, was leading, in fact, toward this uh, more and more deeper composition. So more and more things were composed. The pitch from the Middle Ages, uh, the rhythms, etc., and then it was a time for timber and sound uh, before space. So uh, this is the transition between the the, the point of view of uh, the classical modern music, which is the uh, I don't s- we s- we spoke about dodecaphonic serialist, but it's too uh, too limiting expression. Let's say the the uh, uh, neue Musik uh, to be uh, to speak about German of the twenties and thirties, and the music which will develop after the Second World War, which will be serial in many ways, but also electronic, and finally uh, the sound history. So it, it was very important for me to 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 uh, to show that uh, sound is already in uh, Weber. And uh, in fact, that you can listen Webern like uh, almost like in a sound installation when you are listening. Of course, not to all Webern. I took the example of the the, the opening movement of the Opus Twenty One, which is 
radical because uh, it's like a pendulum music. So it it could be a continuous movement, perpetual. It could be uh, performed like uh, vexation of, of Satie, 20 hours, and you could listen in a room. Uh, I, I would be very glad to, to listen to that, not in an orchestra uh, formation, uh, in a concert. And uh, to show that Weber, okay, he was a very nice composer with series, etc. But okay, um, you don't need to to take one year of of your musicological uh, uh, musicological studies to find the series. You listen to sound. It's and it's very beautiful. Okay, so it was a critic of musicology because in the when I was a student. I follow also lessons in Darmstadt, and they spoke about the series. It was very tiring. Analyzing the series and the series and the series. Okay, but Boulez's Marteau Sans Maître is a very beautiful impressionist music. Boulez, it's a kind of strange Ravel music. Uh, it's sound music. It's timbre music with series. So um, for me, it was very important to, to take all this history um, I, I don't know if we can say speak about uh, rational the, the history of more and more composing. It would be the nice term from uh, serial music to granular music, from Weber to Horacio Bagione, or to many other composers of today's music. And uh, okay, there is a continuous history, of course. Uh, sound in Webern is less important than granular music, so I use various terms, as you notice, sonority, texture, etc. Inside the history, you have also minimal music, which is also sound music through processual processes. Uh, you have spectral music, you have many other things. And um, uh, so from material to sound, so this is also shown the historicity of the notion of material. It's very interesting because, uh, to go back to your first uh, uh, observation, but because today there are people that don't use the term material. Uh, they are astonished when material in French, material in English, uh, material, what is this material in music? They, they don't understand. In fact, it's a category very recent. I, I think that in conservatories, when they speak about uh, tonal music, they don't use material. They speak about tonality, harmony. So this word became more and more important in the 50s, 60s. It was in the 30s, but on, only in Germany and Adorno, Krennic, etc. And today, we don't use neither because we, we use the word compose. So uh, a question very important, a limit in history. And because... In fact, it shows that the terms we use to analyze music are historical. It's time to speak about sound. Maybe tomorrow we will use another category to analyze tone, etc. In the past, that's it. Right, and that's. I mean, if people have been following along so far, um, that is exactly the stakes of the book, kind of in a nutshell. Hearing something like the Weber Symphony or uh, Buddha's in a different way by attending to its character as sound. But it's not just that all music is about sound trivially, because of course we all, you know, expect that music is something to do with the sound sense. It's about sound as such. And then this extra qualification is that that is that that 
relationship between music and sound is, first of all, hard earned, <laughs> first of all, by, by the history that you describe, but also that relationship can become subject to history itself. And as you point out, it may be that we, we think or conceptualize about this particular period in music history using a different word uh, other than sound. And I think that is, I think that the book could be misread to contrive that relationship as being very stable, but this chapter shows that you're very committed to upsetting the stability of the relationship between the music that is being studied and the terms that are used to describe it. And then that instability is one that we can't avoid because of the nature of history. So I think, yeah, if people have been coming along to this point, this is a really important um, moment to understand and to kind of unlock the rest of the book. So so we're, we're nearing the end, um, and we did speak a little bit about this, about the structure of the book as a spiral, kind of unwrapping from the central core of a series of concerns that have been long theorized, noise, timbre, and so on, towards topics about sound that are perhaps still in negotiation in music today. And one of these is the relationship between sound and space. And um, like many of the other chapters, you begin with a heuristic distinction between two kinds of spaces. On the one hand, the representational space of music composition, and we've already spoken a bit about this, about how notation and recording make certain kinds of sounds thinkable or possible. And then the more literal physical space in which music is realized. Uh, so something like the polytopes, uh, for example, where there is a, a, a very clear mapping, there's the polytopes. So there is a concern here that we've conflated these two senses for too long, perhaps caring too little about the differences between these two um, notions of space. In this chapter, you write about music that strives towards a principal synthesis of these two positions. So in the chapter, people like uh, Francois Bernard Mach's phonography, the acoustic ecologies of Ormary Schaefer, the kind of musicalized field recordings of Hildegard Westerkamp and Michael Pizarro, as well as the now classical architectural interventions of someone like Zanakis that we just mentioned. And you settle on the hybrid notion of sound space to refer to the kind of simultaneous thinking through of space and sound that the work of these people represents. At a moment, which is, I suppose, right now, where it's difficult to discern a consensus between people who are committed to referring variously to words like soundscape, atmosphere, ecologies, audible ecosystems. How does the construction sound space help you make sense of the landscape here in the final chapter of your book? And I think this points towards some of your current research interests as well. So I'd be happy to speak about where the last chapter of the book um, is launching you into new and different questions, given that the first uh, version of this book came out in 2013 and it already had a long uh, gestation period before then. Thank you very much for your way of opening the discussion. Yes, um, to speak uh, very shortly about the chapter itself, um, Adorno could be um, a link be, uh, with the previous chapter because uh, in Adorno you find a lot of sentences where he speaks about spatialization of music. Um, in fact, he took it, he took it from Bergson. The, the French philosopher Bergson, he never quote. I don't know, never quote nobody, <laughs> but it's clear that he took from from him. And for I don't know, it was very negative. Uh, he says uh, Stravinsky, there is specialization. He means that music is in a way frozen. He means there is no more development, organicism, etc. Uh, so for me, it was problematic in the beginning. Uh, the, the, the notion of uh, 
uh, of uh, specialization. In the same time, there was, of course, the, 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 the history of uh, the way composers deal with space, compose space. So I tried to put together these two notions because they are not totally different. And um, the final synthesis is that, uh, in fact, uh, there is no opposition between uh, uh, organicism and, uh, let's say, um, uh, the way to work to compose um, uh, with space. And the, the synthesis is what happens today with uh, people working with sound installations and with ecology. So uh, it's it's interesting to continue what your observation that with the dint sense, okay, that uh, we change uh, point of view, etc. And uh, it's important to do that. Uh, even Stravinsky, if you are Adonian, he's a very nice composer. <laughs> even the neoclassical <laughs> Stravinsky, maybe listening it through the ears of sound and not of harmony. Okay, so this chapter. Uh, is a, a way of finishing uh, this history of sound and opening to something else. Uh, at the time I wrote, I wrote the book, I, I was just discovering acoustic ecology and uh, installation, etc. So I used this category of sound space, which I think is operat- operative, uh, if you say in English, that um, it's, it's not a fixed category, it's a way of understanding ways that sound... It's not, as some people tried to view it in the 90s, uh, a parameter, but it's something uh, physical and also inside music. So it's related to sound, in fact. In fact, when we begin to work with space, it's then that we begin more and more to work with sound. So it's interesting to view it sound space and uh, the way that music uh, leaves in a way uh, the score the metaphor of flying but not flying in the mystical in chelsea's searching for a depth but searching for uh, the the relationship to the environment something that music cut the links let's say in, with the beginning of concert music uh, and we had something abstraction, the uh, concert uh, à l'italienne, uh, so you have the orchestra in front of you, etc., and the score, of course. And then, so the second step is sound installation step. And uh, um, now I'm exploring more and more the, um, the, relation, the concrete relationship with environment, because in sound installation, it's, not, uh, it's also limited to a space. It's like a concert, but more open to to, to space. Agostino Di Scipio was used for me as an interesting transition because in his music, in his audible ecosystems, he used um, uh, sound of the environment to generate transformation. So uh, even if it's more performed in... Uh, concert situation or in installation, it's already an ecological music. So to speak now about what I'm interested in, uh, starting from this point of view, I'm exploring more and more the relationship to concrete and to real space. So I, I leave, I quit the category of space, which is abstract in a way. I'm more working with the category of place, like in ecology. 
also with a general uh, category of environment, but environment it's a it's too a uh, complex world. So, in fact, we can speak of ecology, of ecology, but in a wide sense, not ecology only related to environmental matters, uh, but also to um, uh, social matters and to mental matters. So, there is in fact music is. Uh, in contact, in a permanent uh, relationship with uh, these multiple environments, which we can call them ecology. And with the distance, we can say that uh, classical music, tonal music, contemporary music, in fact, it was uh, very interesting, but limited, parenthesis, three centuries. Because before and now, people are more and more interested in, in the relationship with the environment. That doesn't mean that we ha- we will go back to functional music, uh, but artists are more and more aware of this environment, and they um, they are not composing any more uh, score music. They take concretely um, uh, in their music. They, they they're trying to make this relationship. Um, we could quote, of course, acoustic ecology. Uh, work, but also many composers uh, working with the idea of uh, of the the brutist uh, and the noise uh, trend of music. I think the main explanation is also this concern for uh, um, what we could call mental ecology, what sound noise make to our brain. And we could also quote many people working with a social uh, question and political question, of course, gender questions and uh, uh, more uh, political uh, in the st- more strict sense people that are taking uh, are aware that music is developing with an environment and is also intended with an environment uh, an environment so we can keep an eye out for that in english over the next couple of years is that right you're working on it right now Great. it's a book that I almost finished, and will it's translated in English. It will be directly published in English, um, and uh, uh, it will be published. And it with uh, for for instance, the working title will be uh, exploring the ecologies of music and sound, with a subtitle uh, the the uh, living the living world, the mental, the social, in today's music, and artivism. Um, Interesting in artivism, activism and art, um, we f- begin to find in uh, um, sound art, in music. Oh, okay, we begin to find, but musicians are more idealistic. In sound art, uh, many more and more people are artivists. To speak about sound art, uh, for me, the book From Music to Sound was also a challenge to, to bring together this two uh, histories of sound art and music. Music and sound art are very related, even if uh, they are different. And I'm very I'm very unhappy when I see that you have in some university, especially in Anglo-Saxons, you have uh, departments of music and departments of sound art. I think it's, it's not good. <laughs> we are speaking not about the same, but we can put together. I, I hope in France, for instance, we have only music departments, and I hope the sound arts will develop inside these uh, departments oh exactly and those structures are often a reflection of something else as well not necessarily the 
the internal structures of the discipline. So finally, I maybe um, we spoke a little bit about Zanakis. Um, you're involved in an upcoming, it's kind of hard to believe, but it will be the centenary uh, of Zanakis born in 1922. So there's some activities coming up for that that you might like to speak about. Uh, Zanakis was, uh, we, we are not sure about the year he was born, 21 or 22, more probably 21. But everybody will make the big uh, things on 22 because of COVID situation and also of time. So there will be many, many things. And among others, for musicologists, uh, we are preparing an international symposium. We choose Athens and Nafplio, um, a, town, uh, a small town in Peloponnese, so as to go to Mycenae, uh, Mykines in Greek, where Xenax make the, his big polytop of Mykines. Uh, so we will make a, a symposium itinerating, starting from Athens, the place where he was wounded in uh, December 44, he almost died, and finishing to Mykines. Um, there will be many, I'm sure, many proposals. So there will be, a, uh, uh, it will be interesting to renew our questioning about Xenakis, maybe to go back to some question about mathematics uh, and others. And to experience that sense of connection between space and music too, exactly. um, that also. I think we're all missing right now. Exactly. Um, <laughs> listen, um, Marcus, thank you very much. I've taken up loads of your time. Um, thanks for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to hear about the book. Um, thank thanks. you very much, Iman. And your no listeners problem. also. Thank you. <laughs> Not a problem. Um, so, uh, I, like I said, I hope it's a, a useful introduction to your work for an English-speaking audience and um, listeners will be able to find links to some of the events that we've just spoken about in the description for the um, podcast. And until next time, um, thank you very much for listening. And thank you again, uh, Maki Solomos, for your time and your expertise. Thank you very much, Aileen.